the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey all, welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We are glad to be here on a Monday. Is that what it is? Monday? Oh, wow. (laughs) Wow. You had one of those days, one of those weekends, didn't you? And for well, most that, people, they would hear that and go, wow, he must have had a fun weekend. I mean, a complete yeah, yeah, like, right. young kid's weekend. I'm glad you specified, because I'm sure people are listening like, wow, you really uh, really got out and saw the town. I did not. I saw mostly the basement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you came in and you were like, I am just dealing with very little sleep. I said, well, okay. <laughs> Off and running. It's going to so, be that kind of day. Off and running. Well, you can always find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show. Twitter at Common Good talk. Before we jump into our stuff today, all right, I've got a scenario for you that I ran into today. Oh, no. I'm ready for it. This is a dangerous game. On my way, my my addiction to iced tea, I stopped at Dunkin' Donuts on Mm -hmm. the way. You see the big one sitting with me here right right. now. So I know that's not going to be the end of the story. Nope. Okay. Uh, But it has to do with Dunkin' Donuts. Drove up there, and the drive-thru line was at least five minutes long. Oh, my gosh. Like, it was around the Dunkin' Donuts, okay? (laughs) How how did you even survive? But but then I look in... (laughs) And there is not a single person inside. <laughs> not a single person in there. Uh, do you go drive through or do you go, do you wait the drive through line but not have to get out of the car or do you go park and go in? I always park it. You do? Mm-hmm. Okay. I would have normally been a drive through but I parked and went in today. Oh, you normally would just power through in the drive through Depending Why? on where I had to be. It's Why? It's warm. I'm listening to stuff. Oh, no kidding. No. But uh, I've got some people in my life who that thing could have been three times longer, and it's like, nope, going to sit in this drive through Really? Yeah. By <laughs> by people, I mean my wife. <laughs> that there's a, there's a metaphor there somewhere. I don't know what it is, but let's, yep. I'd like to pick that apart sometime. So it, um, the funny part was I didn't even think that parking and going in, like, I was like, oh, the drive through line's so long, and I have to be like, Wait, I can park and yeah. go in. <laughs> There's the thing that existed before drive throughs And I literally went in, bought it, came out, was in my car, and the car that had been in the drive through line hadn't even gotten no up No kidding. Yep. So you're like riding high today. You're feeling I you're feeling am. Real, real I feel good. like I've picked up time in my day. <laughs> Just free time. Oh, well, we're glad you're joining us on this Monday uh, afternoon. And uh, from a couple days ago, um, all over Twitter and the news was... Um, the comments made by Beto O'Rourke, a Democratic candidate for president out of Texas, uh, there was uh, the uh, there was a specific town hall on CNN that was dealing with LGBTQ issues with all the presidential candidates. Right. Uh, and Beto O'Rourke, uh, who has been very bold in his um, 
in his thoughts about gun control. Uh, but he's the one who basically said, we're going to take all your guns, all your AR-15. Sorry, not all your guns, all your AR-15s. We're going to take them all away. Right. And uh, people are like, wait, I don't think you can do that. And uh, another hot button issue came up, and he was very bold. This had to do with uh, religious organizations and churches and tax exemption. Let's listen to what he said. This is from your LGBTQ plan, and here's what you write. This is a quote. Freedom of religion is a fundamental right, but it should not be used to discriminate. Do you think religious institutions uh, like colleges, churches, charities, should they lose their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage? Yes. There can be no reward, no benefit, no tax break for anyone or any institution, any organization in America that denies the full human rights and the full civil rights of every single one of us. And so as president, we're going to make that a priority and we are going to stop those who are infringing upon the human rights of our fellow Americans. All right. What do you think of what Beto O'Rourke had to say? I think he is uh, he's heading down a treacherous path Mm -hmm. with that line of reasoning. Now, uh, if you wanted to say remove the tax exemption status for all nonprofits, all charities, all religious institutions. That would actually be an entirely different discussion in my mind. Uh, But this idea here, though, that they would lose their status based on their particular position on this issue, um, to me, poses all sorts of questions. You had mentioned it, too. Like, there's uh, the Twitter sphere exploded Mm -hmm. with this. And even surprisingly, like one of the articles that we found here uh, from The Atlantic says Democrats are going to regret Beto's stance on conservative churches. Um, There's a lot of people seemingly from the left coming out saying, ooh, you might not want to say that. It's it's been really (laughs) interesting to me to see how many people even from his own tribe are like, that wasn't great. That was not for various different reasons, obviously. But yeah, I I just find the the Internet's response to be fascinating. What uh, I saw, it was a meme or a gif. I can never remember which one they are. And they uh, can be one and the same. Can they really? Mm -hmm. My mind is blown. (laughs) Uh, It said... uh, it, it, the tweet went something like this. It's like, what evangelicals think progressives uh, believe and are going to do? Better work. Yup. <laughs> it's just kind of people going, you don't want to do this. It, it uh. is just a dangerous one uh, because, like you said, <clears throat> who gets to decide, again, uh, what that standard is? And let's be honest, every time there's... Uh, There's a lot of churches and hospitals and um, religious institutions and organizations that are doing uh, a lot of great work. And that's kind of why there's the tax exemption in the first place, amongst many other reasons. Uh, It is interesting, though, uh, where this issue has gone, right? Yeah. Uh, Ten years ago, and Ed Stetzer writes about this in Christian Day, ten years ago it was like, we just want equality. We just want to be accepted. And now it's uh, that has moved pretty far. What do you think the result would be uh, if, let's pretend, I don't think he has any chance of winning, but let's pretend there's a President O'Rourke and he gets uh, gets his way. What would the result be? Um, Gosh, that's a great question. Other than the obvious, (laughs) that churches and charities and not-for-profits that, uh, you know, a whole different views. I think there would be some kind of uproar, I imagine. I don't know what that would look like necessarily. I imagine there would be a lot of lawsuits. Yep. I think we would see an unprecedented level of like legal consciousness about, you know, how do we actually deal with this? Um I don't know though. Like to me, would he, let's even say hypothetically President O'Rourke, how how much how much authority or bandwidth would he actually hold to make a sweeping policy like that 
I mean, that would have to go through so many other hoops even to be considered, right? And do you, I, but yeah, I, again, it you heard, happen. but you heard the cheers though. There's enough, and again, those aren't you know those aren't um, senators in the room necessarily. Right, right. But like, I'd be yeah, I'd be curious to know how he would actually intend to like make that a reality. I don't, I don't actually know what that process would look like. Yeah, and one of the byproducts of this and. Uh, I uh, I think one of the people who was pro- probably most excited about what he had to say was Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because, right. Man, I, I've shared on here my my uneasiness about Donald Trump. We'll put it that way. That's that's a, a more neutral way of saying it. But when I hear stuff like this, I'm like, I could never vote for a person like like you mm-hmm. almost left without a tribe and going, man, this is uh, this is a bit crazy. And like I said, I, I think there are people in the Democratic Party who are like, whoa, let's let's just slow this down. It does bring up the fact uh, there is an increasing movement this generation versus last generation to kind of take away some of this tax exemption from churches for various reasons, from people who see pastors making a ton of money. Yeah. I don't know if people know this, but you and I as pastors, we have a different, we, we file our taxes in different ways than, uh, than regular people, regular people, uh, <laughs> than, uh, than, than just normal jobs. Um, well, they have the option to. You yeah. Don't, you don't necessarily know that I do. Okay. Good point. Good point. <laughs> I think you should probably take advantage of it. <laughs> well, maybe that's a whole different discussion because oh, I, I have some issues with that. Oh, interesting. We yeah. are going to tackle that one. Uh, but but there there is a movement, I'm saying, within our culture to kind of uh, take away some of the statuses churches have had since the beginning. And a lot of First Amendment stuff in there. It is something that is not going to go away as this um, uh, as this uh, campaign keeps going and going yeah, and going. I think you're right. But we're off and running on a Monday. Here we go. Next coming up, uh, we're going to spend some time with Gene Crum. He is the president of Judson University. Crum. Crum. Crum, yeah. Well, I'm glad you told me that before you got me here. Me too. Gene Crum. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> that, that we've learned something today. We're going to spend some time with Gene Crum. We're very excited to do that. Coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Back to the Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Monday afternoon. And we are thrilled to be joined in studio uh, by Gene Kroom. Gene, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Brian. Pleasure to be back. Thanks for coming in, even though I mispronounced your your, uh, last name (laughs) on the first segment. So, uh, got it right. And uh, Gene is the president of Judson University. But something Ian has started doing on our on our show here when we have people in is just letting them uh, introduce themselves. So why don't you tell our audience, remind our audience, because you've been on before. I have. Thank re- you. Remind our audience about uh, who you are, uh, what you like, and uh, and then we'll get rolling. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Gene Kroon, president of Judson University, based in Elgin, Illinois. Um, great Christian liberal arts college with an awesome faculty and staff, um, originally from Kentucky. And I think... Uh, the last time I was on the show, we covered such scintillating topics as Weird Al Yankovic, <laughs> um, other other uh, deep intellectual subjects like that for college. That's president. right. I think also mascots. We covered mascots. mascots. We covered mascots. <laughs> and uh, somehow we created a link between all those things. We did. That's awesome. I don't. I mean, be, saying we is being very kind. You created a link halfway through. I was like, I don't know how we're going to pull out of Where this one. We, going? we really did. It all. It all depends on how you interpret scripture. If you can find, if you can find mascots and Weird Al Yankovic in scripture. <laughs> That's, that's what I do. The bar that's so is high good. for this interview. The that's true. That's high. very true. Uh, all right. So full disclosure, cards on the table. You actually sent me a message in response to a Russell Moore tw- uh, tweet. Right. And, he, and he was talking about this report that was addressing topics that he and I actually, Brian and I, talk a lot about tribalism and polarization. And uh, it's a report that's just a swift 78 pages long 
Uh, <laughs> a brief read. <laughs> brief, just a brief, yeah, just a night, nighttime reading. But uh, would you tell us a little bit, what is the report, first off? And then uh, as someone in your unique position, what are some of the things that you're learning and discovering as a result? Yeah, well, because uh, you all have spoken to this, uh, I thought it was intriguing um, from that perspective to get your all's thoughts on it. The report comes from the... Ethics and uh, Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Church. Russell Moore is the individual that leads that organization. Mm -hmm. He himself, fairly provocative because of the nature of the work he does with uh, political advocacy and uh, how that's either shaping or reshaping the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. Right. But I think the reason as a college president and the work that you all do with your program, um, and especially with the term that you all use, the common good, I think it's important because sometimes reports like this come out and it feels like they're written for themselves mm-hmm. and rather than making them even more accessible to the, the broader public and for the and I truly mean the average working class uh, Christ followers saying, well, what does that mean? Right. And I think it's got some sharp edges in the report, but I think it's a very good thought piece in regard to as we approach a really big election year. Yeah. Right. How do we love and engage our brothers and sisters without continuing at times? I think this this uh, false uh, polarization of um, one or the other. That's right. And yeah. So I thought it would be compelling to chat a few minutes about that. Yeah. Um, so I haven't read the report. Uh, I've read it twice. Once so, you said uh, it was 78 pages, I was like, wow. So what, what's the Reader's Digest version? Where does more go with it? And I'm wondering where the kind of the points you agree on and, may, and maybe where there might be some point of uh, separation for you. Well, the uh, the report uh, was written by a team of individuals. There was two parts to it. Lifeway, which is the uh, publishing company, yep. the Southern Baptist Convention, helped with the research, uh, as did some other uh, organizations, including a very prominent bipartisan um, think tank organization. And, and where they really end up, I think, is in three areas. They end up talking about how do we return to civility? And they uh, very clearly um, uh, present a case that a lot of the civility uh, is because of perhaps misusing scripture mm-hmm. and our faith mm. uh, in in the realm of politics. The second part that they talk about, which I find to be perhaps most compelling, is it is not at all a very flattering picture as it relates to social media. Mm. And and where do we get our news? And what does that look like? Interestingly enough, in the report, they make a case for um, using more mainstream news. They actually say the print or traditional media in that, which I think in itself is rather Mm. controversial. Um, uh, And so um, they they sort of take to task uh, this perspective of uh, picking up the conversation in terms of the white evangelical Christian is the one that elected Donald Trump. Mm. And perhaps some of the civility we've experienced comes from that perspective. Mm, Um, And frankly, I think, I think scripture's much more complex than that in terms of what does politics mean in our life and what should it, should it not mean? Hmm. Well, even just what you said, that scripture is complex. That soundbite alone is controversial for a lot of people. And we've said it before that sometimes the temptation is to say things like, well, scripture is very clear. And then if you take an introductory Bible course, you're like, oh, maybe it's not actually as clear in my Western post-enlightenment English mindset. This has been, there's just a lot more going on. I think you're leading to that. And I think I'm curious, what has been your perspective from your unique vantage point? You work with students, but you also, your role is much broader than that. And you're caring for this Christian university that I hold dearly. And I imagine there's a lot of opportunities for polarization. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of opportunities for disagreement. And you're in a leadership position. How do you personally navigate 
some of these like push and pull tendencies that you're seeing in culture? Well, we we try to uh, at Judson, we try to reflect that in terms of the programming, the voices we bring to campus for our students to respond and react Mm. to. But even when you do that, there there's a range, I believe, that you want to stay within. Right. Because if you go too far in one direction, that's that's far too fundamental Hmm. um, or let's use political terms, alt right. Yeah, right. You have the equal challenge when you become too progressive and alt left. Mm. And so uh, most of the United States is not in that position. I would also offer from my global travels, most of the people I encounter in Central America are not in that position. Hmm. Most of my friends that I know that are part of the Brexit conversation are not in that position. Hmm. Most of us live in that amazing middle in between there, and we're trying to figure all this out. So our job is to help support students um, as they navigate their way through that. So, for example, last week we had Caroline Kennedy being interviewed by Eric Metaxas. Right. Uh, we had uh, Howard Dean and Newt Gingrich in conversation. And so making sure people hear voices, but the voices aren't so polarized that they become clinging symbols. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm curious. We had Eric Metaxas on to talk about that. And I, I, I wonder as a president, not so much your students, but your alumni base, uh, do they get mad when they hear Howard Dean's coming and the another side gets mad. How do you as a president have to navigate? No, it's good for us to have Howard Dean with Newt Gingrich. And right. I'm guessing because it's usually older people like us, right? I like to call ourselves older people who get <laughs> riled up about these things more. Do you have to work the alumni and massage that a little bit? Well, I don't know that we massage it so much as we uh, uh, share with uh, whether they be current students. Because when we had Jay Sekolo come speak, we had a group of a half dozen students that were concerned about he and uh-huh. his message. Uh, interestingly enough, um, some of them concerned not because they had actually read his books, but because right. of his public persona. Right. And um, and but we had a great conversation. Chris Lash was very instrumental, our uh, 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 dean of university ministries, in working with them to help them understand that there's something we can learn by listening, yeah. rather than reacting. And they knew that, and I think they had good hearts. So. Pretty much our rule of thumb is if somebody doesn't complain, we probably have the wrong speaker. <laughs> That's good. That's not bad That's at all. That's actually a Scott Saul's uh, quote that we sort of reiterated a number of times. He said, being a Jesus follower means that you're going to upset people both on the left and right at times. And I think that is in this conversation about tribalism in particular, it's one of the things that I've noticed even in myself that if somebody – uh, attacks a position, there's something internal that feels like, oh, I got to put my dukes up, like my position needs mm-hmm. defending right now, which is part of why I think listening is so hard. But you've been hosting all of these events, right, where like it's literally centered around this art of listening. How can we learn from each other? Like what what dreams do you have in the future for the ways that Judson can be modeling that for a greater audience? Well, I mean, uh, the, the hope is encouraging more people to read scripture. The whole point of mm-hmm. reading scripture and the whole point of a life in faith is is to listen yeah, right. It's to, it's to surrender yourself to Christ. That's great. And to, to hear God's voice speak into your life, which is why when we have the Holy Spirit convict us. That's right. Then we're, we're truly in a place of listening and discernment. And what's interesting about the World Leaders Forum is the audience gets um, just little to no chance to really engage the speakers. So they're placed in a position mm. of having to listen. Yeah. And then what is really neat is when the event concludes the dialogue amongst individuals about what had just occurred. And I think sometimes, at least in American culture, 
suspending our right to speak or to <laughs> offer our opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what social media does. And yeah. so, you know, the report, I think what they're really saying as it relates to social media is it provides instant access for us to process unfiltered thoughts. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a great phrase that my wife often uses me with me and she says, honey, it's perfectly okay to have an unexpressed thought. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, so, and so sometimes you don't need to share it. You need to reflect on that's it. Right. And it's, like, right. it's like the old adage we all share, right? You can write that email, but before you hit send, yes. maybe you want to put it in the in the draft section, yes. and the next day just go on and delete it. That's, That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we're uh, thrilled to be joined by Gene Kroom here, president of Judson University. He's going to stay in studio with us coming up next on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I, I was very confused, and then Weird Al... From last segment. I'm, I'm glad we you go. know that was Weird Al, actually. Yes. That, that, that would be a very awkward transition if you didn't know who yes, that was. Yes, I was like, wow, they really did pick a lot of new music while I was gone last week. First <laughs> album I ever purchased, actually. I think I maybe told you this, Good was choice. Weird Al's The Food Album. Good really. choice. And not surprising. I appreciate not that. Not surprising. I appreciate that. <laughs> that third voice you hear is Gene Kroom. <laughs> he is the president of Judson University. Uh, nice enough to join us in studio today for a couple of segments. Uh, Gene, I, we were talking about tribalism and other stuff in our last segment, and you brought up the concept or the issue of social media. And I'm just wondering, as someone who's been in higher education for a while, how is it different now with the advent of Facebook and Twitter? Uh, what has changed uh, on college campuses with social media? Well, it's the instant access that's that's changed the most. Uh, people now have instant access to a larger audience to share what their thoughts are. Um, you know, I still teach each semester. I teach public relations one semester. I teach marketing strategies the other semester. Well, and so social media is a huge part of both yes, of those right. uh, content areas. And um, the only, you know, what I have noticed is that um, it's just the speed of which good things can take place and news can be shared or um bad comments can take place and right. damage can be done so uh, you know blame storming and shaming people moves much more rapidly the famous example of the young woman who who made a very inappropriate tweet before getting on a plane in New yes, York City yes, to fly to Africa. Right, right. By the time she landed, she had lost her job. Yes. And millions of people had created, unfortunately, um, a deep hatred of her. Mm, that's right. I'm, I'm not judging her comments, which were inappropriate, which she acknowledged. But right. so it can either move fast to help life mm-hmm. and to make people aware of trauma, uh, such as what's taking place, uh, you know, with with Turkey right now and the tra- right. in, in the military actions and people praying for that, or Hong Kong or other challenging situations, or we can get into the blame storming part of it, which really yeah. can wreck people's lives. So yes. I try to teach students to be balanced. But you know, if you tour the Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum and you go through the Hall of Whispers, um, the 1850s and 1860s were full of this as well too. Uh, oh, and so. Uh, scripture's full of it when you read the Bible as far as people calling each other's names. Uh, it may have been a slightly different form of how that took place, right. but our sinfulness is what brings all that out. Yeah. So the question is then, how do we manage that in the way that Christ taught us to manage it? And politics tends to bring out the worst in us yeah. because we, we've made it our idol in every country around the world. That's I right. mean, people fight for power. Uh, there's a joke in higher education um, uh, why are there so much politics in higher education? And the response is because the stakes are so low. <laughs> oh, um, wow. And and there's a lot of truth to that to politics wow. in general. When you make something like that your idol and you put your power 
in the false sense of power that it has, then you're going to fight unnecessarily just to win an idea. Yeah, right. That's really good. And you were touching on this, too, with the rise of social media technology. I appreciate what you said, because I I think you're right. I don't think these are new struggles. They're just manifestations in new ways. And I remember hearing a preacher talk about, even in some of like Paul's letters where he says, um, I have more that I could write to you, but it's actually better that I say it to you in person. And in other letters, he says the opposite. He's like, I'd rather, I'd like to say this to you in person, but it's probably, maybe it's wiser for me to write this. Like he's learning to navigate the technology of his time, which is an art that I think we're losing at times. Like we say digitally what we maybe should say over the phone. Yeah. Maybe show up at the guy's house and have coffee. And I feel like that's part of why this divide is widening. We did an article a couple months ago. There's a, a nonpartisan group called More Uncommon, and they found that like both the right and the left are very bad at predicting how the other person actually thinks and believes. And I thought, oh, this is bo- both sides are struggling with this. And I'm curious how how you think we get better at this. Like what are like hmm. even maybe practical steps? Someone's listening right now. They're driving and thinking, yeah, I totally agree. What can I do? I don't hold political office. I'm not the president of a, of a university. What, how can we individually or collectively as the church, as Christ followers, be better at this? Well, building a sense of community. I think mm. what what you all, um, you know, just even the name of your program, The Common Good, one of the things I struggle with in the report is that um, the word common is a very powerful word. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a word I think that we don't embrace mm. as, as being a, an affirmation. Right. Meaning that it's something we share. Yeah. Mm. It, it's common. And so um, we have to agree that something is common. Um, and, and I think the report at, at times um, sort of, overlooks the common individual who lives in the community who's trying to work at his or her job right. and take care of their family and go to work. And frankly, they don't have time to think about politics. Right. And so when they read stuff like this, or they read about how the acrimony that we have in our political debate, they see it at a very high level mm-hmm. and they may not feel it at their own local level. And they tend to feel like everyone's accusing them of not being as involved as they need to be. Right. And really their response is, look, I'm following Christ. I'm raising my family. I'm trying to make a difference in my community. It's almost their response is, I don't have time to argue these esoteric debates that you have. And right. not, not, not that they're all esoteric or that they're all up on an upper intellectual shelf. Hmm. But um, in our common lives, our job is to follow Christ as closely as we can. And and it, you just don't have room to make politics your idol. That's right. That's yeah. well said. I'm curious, as a college at Judson, how do you guys, uh, because on one hand, as a president of college, your goal is, like, let's educate these kids. uh, Shape lives to shape the world. Mm -hmm. Oh, is that that Mm -hmm. the tagline? Okay, okay. Wheaton for Christ and his kingdom. Here we go. Mm -hmm. I like like Judson's. (laughs) (laughs) What do you have against Christ and his kingdom? See, now we can practice civil dialogue. (laughs) I don't know about civil. We'll see. I'm wondering, and and part of the answer here is that you guys are doing these great forums with people from different sides, but how much do you as an administration and faculty say, you know what, we've got them for four years. We want to help them be able to think through just how to be functioning Christians in this political world. Uh, How how much of a burden do you feel to help kids be able to graduate Judson ready Mm. to do that? A a tremendous amount because, um, you know, we at our heart, uh, not only are we a Christ-centered institution, we're still at our heart a liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. Right. And so uh, learning to think deeply about these things is incredibly important to us and uh, building time into our schedule for that. So for Judson, for example, we have Gen 101, which is our introduction to college, but it's more, it's deeper than just that Mm. and helps students think about why they're in college and what to think about. I share with my students in class, 
and I hope the listeners can appreciate this. I share with <laughs> students in class. I don't really care what you think, but I care that you care about what you think. Mm, now, that's great. I really do care what they think. There are a yep. lot of bad ideas in the world, and right. I don't want to promote a bad idea, yep. but I care uh, equally as passionately about helping them th- to discern the things that they're thinking about. And if I disagree with with their perspective, if it is a thoughtful perspective and well-reasoned, right. then then I want to encourage them to continue to, to, to mine that well. Yeah. Um, and I think Scripture is the same way. I mean, you know, there are very few things that we all agree upon. Right. Um, and so we struggle then with the mystery or the other aspects of theology. Um, and we want students to help um, uh, give them a firm foundation with that intellectual struggle. Great. That's well said, too, because I feel like it's so interesting when Jesus talks about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength we always glaze over the mind part as if that's not something also to love god with and i'd love could you just say one more time what you said about it's not i don't care what you think but my my phrase is i don't care what you think i care that you care about what you think Mm. that's so key and i think part of what you're talking about is distinguishing the difference between just mere passion around an idea and actually learning to think deeply about that passion because i think you know, and this is probably not new to younger generations. Like, it's clear that you are passionate about this. I don't think you've given this enough thought yet. That's the kind of care that you're talking about, right? Don't Correct. just feel it deeply in your gut. Do the legwork to actually know what it is that you believe. How do you help students do that? Well, you have to encourage them to let your passion ultimately connect with your intellect. The two mm, have right, to find right. uh, that, that point of intersection. And so seeking wisdom from those smarter than you, as you all mentioned a second ago, listening deeply and putting yourself in a position of, of receiving and listening rather than feeling like you you have to respond. I, th- I do think that's what social media uh, I do think that's one of the negative consequences is that we feel like we have to respond right to everything. <laughs> it's okay yeah. to be on social media and not to respond to things and just absorb <laughs> what that person's uh, sharing or reporting. Yes. But, it, but just as important, it, you know, it's good too to have several different sources. Yeah, right. It's good to listen to people or read things that don't support your point of view so you can strengthen your point of view. It's like what C.S. Lewis says about doubt. Mm. You know, th- there's only an assurance that comes from wrestling through your doubt. That's right. Yes. That makes you more comfortable in sharing what you want to share with, with others. And the other part is community. And that's what Christ did, bringing people together in fellowship and talking about ideas. And that's why I kind of got on this little bent about the common folks. When you live in a community in your neighborhood and your neighbor and you're taking care of them, you can disagree on lots of issues. Yes. But when they have a flat tire, your desire is to want to help. That's right. When that's you true. know they had a loss in the family, you take a meal over, not because of their politics, because you see their humanness in that. Yes, right. And we may still disagree with them on some big issues. Of course, yeah. Cultural political, theological, but um, when you're in community with them and you're in fellowship with those individuals, then everything else changes in our dialogue. That's so good. Well, we're going to, you're listening to Gene Kroom, president of Judson University, and he's going to stay with us for one more segment where we're going to talk about an article that recently came out in Christianity Today. So it's just titled this, While we, Why We Still Need Christian Colleges. So we're going to discuss that with the president of a Christian college next year nice. on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us on this Monday. We are thrilled to be joined for one more segment by Gene Kroom, the president of Judson University. Thank you so much for joining us, by the way. This is really, uh, really nice of you to be here. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate the invite. Absolutely. So before the break, I teased this article from back in September at Christianity Today. Uh, it just says why we still need Christian colleges. Now, I know, Ian, 
loved his time at Judson and thinks <laughs> that that was important. And I'm from Wheaton College. So we're both from liberal arts Christian institutions and believe highly in them. Wondering uh, your reaction to this article, just uh, the need that Christianity Day is saying, like, we've got to rally around Christian colleges and they're really important, uh, especially in our culture today. Well, they're important for two reasons uh, that that I would encourage people to really think about. Uh, number one, some of the best writing and some of the best academic study and intellectual pursuits have come from believers in their different and respective professional fields and academic fields. Mm. So we have uh, other Christ followers that are making a big difference in uh, their area of professional expertise, and they teach at these Christian colleges mm-hmm. all throughout the country. Right. Whether you're going from California to New York, Florida to Detroit, Michigan. They populate all all of these uh, colleges and universities. The second reason is not every school is designed, and I think having Wheaton and Judson in this conversation, not every school mm-hmm. is designed to um, recruit a certain type of student. Wheaton um, uh, recruits academically strong students. Mm-hmm. Judson University is a school of both and. We have an architecture program, so right. we have to be academically strong. And at the same time, we have a RISE program mm. for students that are intellectually differently abled. Mm. And so Christian colleges and university are also some of the finest schools of access and opportunity to the underserved populations. Oh, and right. so we do both intellectual discovery well and providing an opportunity to earn a college education to those that are disenfranchised well, too. That's right. So, okay, so you just handed us a book, and rather than even try to navigate through my introduction of this book, it's called The Disciplines of the Christian Life. Tell us a little bit about this book and why this book, particularly the author, is so important to you. So tying it back to the report from uh, the uh, ERLC and uh, political discourse in the United States, my research lately has uh, been focused on the apolitical life of Eric Little. Mm. So here's an individual in 1924 who at the height of human fame, because he he was known around the world, he was revered in China because he was born on the mission field in China. He ran in the United States after the Olympics and crowds thronged, came out to see him. He ran throughout Europe and certainly throughout England. And at the height of that, he knew God called him back to the mission field. Mm. Now, he was not an individual that did not understand politics. He did. He chose not to run on a Sunday, mm. thus putting his popularity amongst his uh, um, the men and women in his country at risk. Mm. And he did it because of his faith. Wow. And um, so he understood politics. He served in China. And before World War II broke out, Japan and China were continuing conflict that had been lasting hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. So Mm. he understood the political climate of Japan and China as well. And he decided and made a conscious choice to put himself in between political divisions to serve Christ. And what's interesting about the uh, report is that there's actually a line in there that says that implies that we can't avoid the political conversation right and my response is well we can't avoid it but how we handle it defines everything that's right and so you don't i would encourage people don't feel compelled and don't feel guilted into voting one way or the another don't feel guilted into being more political than you should be or shouldn't be Mm. politics is a human institution that's right and so by design it is flawed yeah. And it is flawed because of sinful people and sinful human existence trying to use power to advance human ideology and not God's kingdom. It is a tool by which God will bring about God's kingdom. Right. That's how, as believers, we need to embrace it. And I don't think 
anyone embrace that understanding as well or as deeply as Eric Little ever did. No yeah. kidding. Have you always been fascinated by Eric Little? You said you're going to spend some real time this summer kind of diving into his life and some other stuff, or is this kind of a, a new thing you've stumbled upon? No, I've been fortunate to be uh, connected to the Eric Little Center in Edinburgh, Scotland mm-hmm. for a good number of years now, and much like a lot of people uh, when the movie A Chariots of Fire came out in the early 1980s, mm-hmm. I was just drawn into his story. Yeah. And then actually from a political standpoint, too, the contrast between Harold Abrams, who ended up being a very political figure in England, and, and uh, Eric Little, um, I think is a, even a good case study of, of how politics are being drawn into the politics of power from a governmental standpoint mm. is interesting to look at and study. So I have a, it, it, he's just been a phenomenal inspiration in my life in terms of how he put Christ in front of everything else that he did. Right. I had a mentor when I was in college who would often say something to the tune of don't just engage the political conversation, elevate it. And was always kind of calling us to this Mm. engagement's fine. That's what everyone does. How do we as Christ followers elevate it? And at the same time, I've often heard people say, well, Jesus wasn't political, so don't bother engaging this political sphere at all. What do you say to those types of sentiments that assume that the kingdom of God, the good news that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not? How, how do those play into some of our political conversation? What would you say to someone that says, well, Jesus isn't political at all? Or mm-hmm. Well, that's where dialogue comes in. So right. obviously there's there's both a, uh, a rhetorical structure of how you want to respond to that because you don't right. want to tell them their idea is not worthy. Right. <laughs> yes. Right. But um, I would encourage folks that as you read scripture, and I think this is one of the things that Eric Little brings to life is that Jesus absolutely understood the political context. Yes. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of understanding the political context, Jesus showed us another way. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what Eric Little tried to emulate in his life by showing us another way. You know, Rod Dreyer and the Benedict option talks about the engagement that Christ followers maybe shouldn't have, mm. but it is very much a political expression that yeah. is sharing um, Christ you know basically when Christ said whose face is on the coin yeah Christ right. is saying these are things of man and these are things of God yeah. keep your focus on things of God mm-hmm. um, I think the whole debate in, in regard to Paul and his citizenship there is great theological debate was he really a Roman citizen or was right. he not a Roman right. citizen exactly. right the point is it kind of doesn't matter he still leveraged that in acts or allegedly leveraged that right but it's in scripture for a reason yes and part of the reason it's in scripture is that is god doesn't want us to avoid these things god wants us to honor god by yeah. how we handle these things and i think the word elevate is a great way to do that mm-hmm. lift them up to how god would want us to embrace it not how we do it in our in our humanness right yeah in the last minute, minute and a half that we have, as someone who is dealing with really the next generation of the church, a question we've enjoyed asking people when they're, when they're in here is, are you hopeful? Are you hopeful for the church and for Christianity uh, going forward here in America? Extremely. Um, uh, Gen Z is a very revivalistic generation. Mm, yeah. Uh, I had a chance to hear Jolene Urlacher speak about this, and, and she affirmed that perspective. It has lots of writers, but it's not going to be Billy Graham's evangelical mm, right, call it's right. going, it has a very different energy behind it and it's very interconnected and not that evangelism in the, in the past hasn't been but it's interconnected in different ways to include social media mm. um you know whether we get into some of the songs about the revolution will not be televised it's already digitized and this generation knows that yeah and, and uh they're very passionate about that thought, and I have great hope for the old saying that if you're not a uh, if you if you have no passion when you're young, you have no heart. 
if you uh, aren't conservative when you're old, you have no mind. Right? Um. <laughs> if you blend those two together, I think this generation has a lot to say about putting those two together at a very young age. That's fantastic. Well, Gene, thank you so much for joining us again. Yeah. You've been listening to Gene Kroom, the president of Judson University. Uh, we appreciate you coming in and coming in more than once. And we're going to have you in again sometime. Yes, got, please do. Well, we're we're going to do a whole segment called Ian Simpkins, the college years. Nah. And so I think there's a file probably he somewhere. Wasn't, that he, he wasn't there yet. That's but I think not there's a, a file. <laughs> I think there's a file there that we could file. probably access. It's, it's been digitized. <laughs> it's been digitized. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Gene. We really appreciate you doing this. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Ian. Yep. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you here today. You still awake? You good? Mm, hard to say. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we would just do 10 minutes of you going, <laughs> I have been working on my circular breathing. I could have maintained that for a long time. Just give people, just I know you don't want this to be about you, so we'll right. only do it once. Oh, no. But just give people a, an idea. When we're talking about uh, you're working on little sleep, give people just uh, an idea of what we're talking about. Oh, like an actual minute yeah, account? Because when you said it to me, I was like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Today, just last night. Right, just last night. This isn't normal. I think I'm on, we'll say less than three. Ooh. Which in college, I felt I was fine with. Did you ever, were you ever that guy in college? I, uh, yes. You yes. could like get two and a half and you're like, yeah, let's go uh, yeah. for a jog. Yep, yep. Let's go, uh, let's play tennis. Yep. Like I am not in college anymore. You, you would like have that night where you wrote a paper and you got like two and then you uh-huh. went all day and you're like, oh, tomorrow, next night I can catch up. And then that right. next night your buddy's like, you want to go to Taco Bell at 1130? Right. Yes, I, I do. <laughs> for us, it was El Faro in Elgin, Illinois. But yes, oh, same thing. For us, it was Taco support, Bell. And support we, local economy, Brian. So sometimes, <laughs> I remember we went through a Dunkin' Donuts stage, but then it turned into Taco Bell for a long time. Yes. <laughs> that did not help the waistline. <laughs> no. I was say, are you still in that season? People, that? No. <laughs> People would be like, oh, the freshman 15, you don't have to worry about that Wheaton. I'm like, I do for other reasons. <laughs> Wait, why don't you have to worry about that at Wheaton? Isn't that a drinking thing? The freshman 15? Oh, it might be. Look at how homeschooled I am. <laughs> <laughs> Does alcohol make you gain weight, Brian? A lot of it. Yes, yes. <laughs> so apparently uh, that was one. Well, you're going to appreciate this next story because of your life circumstances. So we're in the middle of the uh, baseball playoffs, the American League and the National League Championship Series. In the National League Championship Series, you've got the St. Louis Cardinals playing the Washington Nationals. Mm-hmm. So the games one and two were this weekend, uh, and they were um, they were compelling because the Nationals had no hitters in both games going into the eighth <laughs> and the next game into the seventh. Oh, goodness. So I'm going to hurt your feelings here. You're a Detroit Tigers fan, right? <laughs> yeah. Did right. you see the stat? I No. So this was game for the Nationals. It was Annabelle Sanchez in game one. Uh, Max Scherzer, game two, and no two pitchers had thrown five innings back-to-back of no-hit baseball in the playoffs since Annabelle Sanchez and Max Scherzer for the Detroit Tigers in 2015. 14. Oh, no kidding. Yep, and then you got Verlander going yeah, for that. Yeah, right, Your team right. could be awesome right now. <laughs> oh, man. That's You're okay. right. That does sting. You're rebuilding. <laughs> yeah, so we've been saying that for a while. So the Nationals, their closer is a guy by the name of Daniel Hudson. And Daniel Hudson uh, is an unbelievable story. He has played for six teams. He has had two Tommy John surgeries. 
and never been in the playoffs, I believe. This is the first time he'll at least play a pivotal role in the playoffs. Uh, he's the closer for the Washington Nationals. Well, leading up to Game 1, uh, Daniel Hudson took paternity leave uh, at, because he wanted to be there for the birth of their uh, third child. So his wife, Sarah, uh, and baby Millie were born happy and healthy. But this kind of set off a bit of a... Uh, a bit of an uproar. So former Mar- Miami Marlins president David Sampson on Twitter, for example, wrote this. Unreal that Daniel Hudson is on the paternity le- list and missing game one of the NLCS. Only excuse would be a problem with the birth or health of baby or mother. If all is well, he needs to get to St. Louis. Inexcusable. Will it matter? <laughs> and that's what he wrote. And there was this amazing back and forth. So all of, cool his, guy. all of his teammates, yeah, his wife must be thrilled. <laughs> yeah, right. You so, went on public record saying this? Twitter. Yikes. So all of his teammates were more than supportive, right? They were more su- of supportive. Um, but there was this undercurrent on Twitter, this undercurrent in the baseball world that said he should, like, this is borderline inappropriate that he's missing playoff games. People are going, oh, he could miss, you know. Uh, regular season games, but this is the NLCS. The mom is doing fine. You're getting paid a lot of money. Use this is what you signed up for, and it was amazing to watch this go back and forth. And then the way the game played out, he would have pitched game one. Like they right. actually needed a closer. The Nationals ended up winning. So his manager and the teammates were like really cool about it. They're they're hmm. making jokes. They're hmm. like no. One of his teammates was like, if you're saying that he shouldn't have been at the birth of his child, you're a moron. Like, kind of back and forth. Uh, So wondering. uh, Oh, no. I'm being baited here, aren't I? Just wondering your take on it. Because, quite frankly, uh, I was surprised that it was even an issue. But the whole, like, you make a lot of money. This is what you're paid to do. You need to get to the game. Uh, wondering, uh, wondering your thoughts on this—the the fact that it was even a a hot button thing flying around this weekend. I'm so tired of men being shamed mm. for putting their family first. I'm so tired of it. That's this well whole, put. well, if it was a regular season, go for it. But because of where we're at, this is where it crosses the threshold of being more important than your family. That's kind of the subtext, right? She's fine. So, I mean, again, it's a very, you know, stereotypically male utilitarian way to think about it. Like, she's <laughs> physically healthy. Like, yeah, there's other things she did She didn't have here. the chance not to be there. Right, ex- exactly. <laughs> but this, like, and again, I get, I get that it's just a tweet, but this whole, like, she's fine. What's the big deal? Like, yeah. There's more than her just not dying that is important for the husband and father to be around. Like, I think it's crazy to me. And I don't know. It makes me more frustrated than it probably should to see. Because I think this is all, already such an issue. You know, sort yeah. of the, the workaholism, the work before family, the the whack priorities. Like, I, my brother back home in Detroit took full advantage. And I so respect him for it. His uh, law firm gave him, I want to say... Something like 10 weeks paternity leave. Wow. Or something bonkers. He's like, I'm taking every single day of that. And he's got a bunch of kids. And so he was able to just be there with his kids and his wife. And, and he caught some flack for that, for sure. You know, and like, you know, and you're making making good money. What are you doing staying at home? He's like, this is my, this will always be my first priority. Yeah. You know, just because you dangle. Weeks. Right. I forget. That might be not exactly right. But it was something pretty remarkable like that. And I, yeah, I, again, that's sort of my... General sense is that we need to do a better job of like coaching and cheering the the guys and the girls, yep. the men and women that are making their family a priority, even when the stakes are high and even when you know maybe culture otherwise 
would be tempted to shame you for it. I, I applaud him for it. Matt uh, Hudson said this. Uh, he said, my wife, she's a rock star. She's been around the game as long as I have. She knows kind of what's going on. Obviously, we didn't exactly plan to have a baby in the middle of the playoffs, <laughs> but you plan something and stuff goes crazy. And he also went on to say, I knew I was going no matter what. Uh, said Hudson, who praised the Nationals for their understanding and indeed encouragement. So that's cool that the, that the team itself was like, get there. Right. He said, my family is top priority for me. I heard somebody say one time, baseball's what I do. It's not who I am. Interesting. Preach. We talk about that a lot. We do. And kind of once you and kind of once you have kids or once I had kids, it really resonated with me. So to be able to be part of that was awesome. I do think it's just interesting that people are like, Nobody's saying that no, it's interesting in some of these comments back and forth. Nobody was ever saying no dad should take and be there for their parent. But they're like, but you have an important job that right, pays a lot of right. money and it's the playoffs. You should. That's the subtext. It was, it was just interesting. A lot of baseball like lifers, they were like, I can't believe he's doing this. And you're like, I think there's something generational here, too. It was just such uh, a weird kind of brew over the weekend. That's a good point. The generational thing. Although, I don't know. I know a lot of people, my grandparents age that. Their entire lives have made a a habit of prioritizing family yes. and not doing it perfectly. And I'm not saying I, it's easy for you and I, like in a you know in a studio with microphones, not making millions of dollars. We're not. <laughs> no, no. But you know what I mean. Like it's yep. the, you know we're we're pontificating a little bit here. But and again, I'm saying this to someone who's often getting it wrong in terms of priorities, in terms of mm-hmm. bandwidth, in terms of I'm. We literally just admitted that I'm on two and a half hours of sleep. <laughs> a lot of that is because of my own decisions. That's you know that's yeah. uh, I'm I'm working on stuff late at night, and that's you know again, it's easier to you know in a radio studio to say, yeah, you got to make this a priority. Is sometimes much harder in practice, which is all the more reason why I applaud him for doing it. Yeah. So the article here, it's at Yahoo. Uh, so I like the way the author ends it. He says, so welcome to the world, Millie. That's what they named the baby. This is what it looks like sometimes. Stick with your dad and mom and your family. Try to avoid the idiots. <laughs> That's pretty solid advice. That's not bad by Tim Brown, MLB columnist. So at least it seemed like most people were saying he at least made the right decision. But the fact that that was even up for debate is interesting. You might think differently than us. So we're going to put this up at the Common Good Radio Show on Facebook. That's the Common Good uh, radio show also on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Well, coming up next out of Christianity Today, uh, an article about something fascinating that a church in Arkansas did uh, that you're going to want to hear. That's coming up next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show on Twitter at Common Good Talk Podcast. Wherever it is, you get our podcast. Wherever it is. My goodness. And uh, you can find us (laughs) and uh, go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. And uh, thank you in advance for those of you who do listen to the podcast. We, We really do appreciate it. Uh, there was this uh, kind of a heartwarming story uh, out of ChristianityToday.com. My heart's warmer already. Hey, here we go. Right? I'm going to read some of it and then uh, want to get your take on it. Okay. February 28th, 2019 was one of the worst days of 23-year-old Brenton Wynn's life, but it paved the way for one of the best. Oh. Angry at God after he relapsed from an addiction to methamphetamines despite spending time at a faith-based recovery program, Wynn knew nothing about Central Baptist Church of Conway, Arkansas, when he broke in that February evening. High on drugs, Wynn went on a rampage and destroyed $100,000 worth of church property. That's a lot of damage. Including laptops, cameras, and other electronics. He remembers little of that night. 
Six months later, uh, he stood in the baptismal pool at Central Baptist as the church's associate pastor of ministry celebrated the young man's decision to follow Christ through baptism. Wynn said, as I'm starting to understand how God works, I've realized I didn't pick the church that night. God picked me. If it had been any other church, I think I'd be sitting in prison right now. It goes on to tell his story. He grew up in a God-fearing home, he says, but Mm. he started experimenting with methamphetamines, uh, full-blown addiction. But then he got off of the drugs by going to a faith-based recovery program, and he stayed off of drugs for a while. But in September of 2017, his cousin committed suicide, and this sent him back into his addiction. By last February, when he broke into the church, Wynn was homeless and desperate. His journey from a jail cell in February to a baptismal pool in September began when Central Baptist senior pastor Don Chandler talked to the prosecutor the following Monday. Chandler knew the godly response to win would be to offer forgiveness rather than judgment. He said, you can't preach something for 50 years without practicing it, especially in front of your whole church. Had we not shown some grace to him, everything we've talked about and encouraged would have gone by the wayside. Right. It was simply the right thing to do. This was not a hardened criminal. This was a young man who had made mistakes. He was on drugs and alcohol when he did it, but he was redeemable. Chandler mentioned that day that to the prosecutor that the church would like to see Wynn get help. In fact, one of the church's partner ministries had been Renewal Ranch, a faith-based residential recovery ministry just outside of Conway. Uh, Over the next few weeks, Chandler, the prosecutor, and Wynn's lawyer, lawyer continued to discuss the best way to help him. The case's judge, who at time had been a board member of, member of Renewal Ranch, gave Wynn the option. He could either go to jail, or he was potentially facing 20 years of incarceration, Whoa. or he could voluntarily choose to go to Renewal Ranch. Uh, he chose Renewal Ranch. <laughs> Smart man. So it's a 12-month renewal, uh, uh, biblical-based program, recovery program. Uh, For the first six months, participants are housed on the 102-acre property. Every week, local pastors and volunteers lead 15-plus hours of Bible study. Participants have access to trained biblical counselors and are required to do 300 hours of community service. The second six-month phase of the program, participants live in off-campus apartments operated by the program. Uh, He says, our goal of this program is to make reproducing disciple makers for Jesus Christ. Wynn accepted Christ as a savior after one of the Bible studies at Renewal Ranch. Wynn and other ranch residents now attend church at Central Baptist on Wednesday evenings, and he chose to be baptized at the church on one of those Wednesday nights. He says, I gave my heart to Christ that night. I used to think it was a coincidence that I chose to break into this church that night. But now I call it confirmation that God is real. He answers prayer. What was weighing on my heart was that I needed a relationship with Jesus Christ. Wynn still must finish the program in order to avoid jail time. Once he completes the program, he'll likely spend a couple years on probation. What a crazy, crazy story that when I read it, I was like, we just need to read that whole story. There's so much in there. Uh, What do you like about that story? You know, I think it's... um it's a really great story for this day and age when I feel like so much of the public persona of churches is less than desirable uh, for good reason, to be yeah. honest. And yeah. stories like this of someone who, you know, in our language, we would say is far from God. Yep. I think he would agree. Um, you know, obviously part of what makes a story so compelling is the drama of it. You know, like it would be it would be a great story either way. But if he like I broke in and thirty seven dollars worth of damage, yeah. you know, but just yeah. like the. He's on meth and a hundred grand full of damn it. Like it just sort of paints this dramatic picture. It it makes me really, really 
proud, though. Those are the moments where I think, man, that, that is a church that had the opportunity to do a bunch of different things. And what they chose to do, I just think is so Christ-like and so honorable. And it's one of the things, honestly, if I could brag on our church a little bit, yeah. that I, you know, so like Mike Charta and his team, they oversee uh, a, a number of people who are working community service. So on any given week, uh, we have a lot of people who, you know, it's usually not to that level, but they've made some mistakes and they got to work some hours off. And it's remarkable how many people just mm. from like being around our community, not even necessarily on a Sunday, just like getting to know some of the staff because they're around five hours a day and a number of them have found mm. their way back to God. I, I mean, we've even done events in the parking lot where we'll bring in food trucks. Yeah. And I remember last year we had an event and the food truck was there before and after our 5 p.m. service. So they had set up and they were selling food beforehand. And then uh, the 5 p.m. service started and the guy in the truck was like, hey, could I, am I allowed to come to service? And I was like, yeah, man, come on. And afterwards, I, I connected with him, and he had just, like, tears running down his wow. face. And he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a criminal or anything, but yep. he's just someone, and he kind of told me his story about how he'd been far from God for a long time. And I yeah. think churches have so many opportunities outside of the Sunday morning experience to be Jesus to people. I feel like so often we put so many eggs in just this, like, 60-minute production that we miss chances. And maybe we don't all have people, you know, strung out on drugs, breaking into our buildings, but... We do have opportunities, I think, right under our noses to really be loving, gracious people yeah. to those that are like maybe not ever entering our building, yeah. but they're right around the corner. Like, how, how are we engaging them? How yeah. are we loving them well? And I think this is this is this story is a great inspiration of that. Yeah. And, you know, you could justify like this article could be written and with a complete different ending that is justified. Like they could have they, they had one hundred thousand dollars worth right, of stuff. Right. They could have easily said, hey, we need to help teach this guy a lesson. Uh, he he deserves punishment for what he has done. Right. Uh, it's the right thing to do. Maybe even we'll go visit him in prison. Like sure, we'll do right. something, which is okay. Um, but they they chose the route of grace, and what a beautiful picture of the gospel! Yeah. What a beautiful picture, a tangible picture. Like this, literally cost them stuff. Like they, it cost them, and it and they were they had to lay aside uh, their right for quote unquote justice. Right. They mm-hmm. they the the. The pastor went to the prosecutor and said, I understand that justice in this could be for us to, to press charges, but we don't want that to happen. We, we see someone redeemable. Uh, I just love that line from the pastor, but he was redeemable. Like what right. a wonderful picture of human value there, too, that if we as churches just really took on that everybody around us, including ourselves, is redeemable. How would that change our actions? It would drive so much. Well, and I think that's part of what makes the gospel so scandalous is because it offers this, you know, Gene Kroon was talking about it earlier too, this like third way that nobody, you know, could have ever seen coming. So like, obviously they could have uh, prosecuted and mm-hmm. justifiably sent him to prison or they could have also said, that's ah, all forgiven. Don't worry about you it. Not even, point. you know, like both of those are options. I felt good about like, look, we showed him grace when in reality you're not helping him. That's very much. right. Right. So this like third way of Jesus is so often, I think, surprise. It's, it's when someone's hearing him say, hey, if someone strikes you on your cheek. And everyone listening is going, okay, he's either going to say, punch him back or run. <laughs> Jesus says something different. Yeah. He, says, he says, look him in the eye, but then offer him your other cheek. Like yeah. there is that, there is this, this, this disruption, this holy disruption of like, you see in these like binary categories and Jesus, I feel like is often saying the kingdom functions very differently than these, these corners that were kind of drawn to. And I think this exists on social media. I think this exists in our political discourse. And I think this story is just a really great example of 
kind of the grace conviction, the grace yeah. and truth balance that, you know, churches are invited to walk into. Yeah. And it's such a beautiful picture. Also, we, you know, as pastors, we are always like trying to get our people to share their faith, to reach yeah, out right. to others. This is a uh, a ready-made evangelist, right? Because <laughs> right. he has been shown right. the grace of Jesus so much more deeply than any of us probably have likely to experience in our right. lives. We right. all get it, but he has experienced in a way that it's going to be impossible for him not to now probably, I'm guessing, yeah. become part of Renewal Ranch right. or become part of sharing. And so we wanted to share that story because it is a beautiful picture of the gospel uh, what Jesus has done for us, and then a church living it out, putting it into action. You can find it on our Facebook page at The Common Good Radio Show. Well, it's Monday, and so we love to spend some time <laughs> each Monday going, here's what we preached yesterday. And uh, Love is too strong a word. We, we will do it. We, we'll we, do it. <laughs> we, we will comply. Go? I preached. I, <laughs> words left my mouth. <laughs> we are going to discuss that next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us. Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, Twitter at Common Good Talk. You can find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Uh, go ahead and subscribe, rate, and review. Thank you for those who do listen to the podcast. Uh, as Ian and I talk each week, we are both pastors. That is our primary jobs, our primary roles. Ian at Community Christian Church, The Yellow Box uh, in Naperville. But you also preach... Uh, through the network of community churches, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And so I don't know where you preached yesterday, but oftentimes you'll be in the city or in other spots. Yep. Uh, I'm at Four Corners Community Church in Darien, Illinois, and uh, get a chance to be the primary teacher there as well. And so uh, it makes Monday always a bit of a weird day. You're a little bit tired, a uh, little bit, uh, you know, there's, uh, I forget the phrase you used one time, but there's a bit of a holy hangover sometimes. Holy hangover, yeah. Uh, Probably um, a phrase I shouldn't be using anymore. <laughs> Just use the word holy in front of it. Uh, <laughs> that makes it okay. <laughs> yep, yep. A Christ-honoring hangover. So oh, boy. It is, you kind of get up on Monday morning and you're like, oh, okay. And uh, and uh, even as I get older, I find myself even like physically sore from preaching sometimes. And no, so, you don't. A little bit. A little back issues. A little back issues. From just standing that long? I think so. Really? I think so. You need to see a chiropractor. I have recently begun. Really? Yeah, yeah. Did you and preach so, on that? No, no that's coming. There's a metaphor there for sure. He's yeah. in my church, so he'll he'll appreciate <laughs> oh, the plug. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, we, we like to take some time to go, this is what we preached about, because hopefully uh, you spent time in church yesterday and we're, uh, you know, uh, we're able to hear a sermon, but also we're, we're hopeful that what we teach on each week, and then we share it with you on the radio, uh, in some ways, help some of you out there. And so uh, I preached yesterday the next se- uh, step in our Daniel series. We are going through the book of Daniel, which is a uh, I'm learning a lot as I go through. I've realized, well, I haven't spent much time ever really right. diving into the book of Daniel. We all know the lion's den, the fiery furnace, some other things. But you, you call it the Daniel plan. Is that the series? That's coming. No. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Eat the vegetables. That's oh, boy. No. <laughs> and uh, yesterday was Daniel chapter four, uh, and it's a really interesting one because it is the it is the uh, the chapter that is written by Nebuchadnezzar, or it's at least his words. It's not about Nebuchadnezzar. It yeah. is Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar is the worst of the worst. Right? He's the worst. 
But in this chapter, he is transformed and he is he is like, you know, he says at the end, he says, I praise and extol the God of heaven. And you're like, wow, that is a transformation. And so I I asked our people at the very beginning of the message, do you still believe that transformation occurs? Like, do we still believe that those people were praying for and hoping that God will do a major work? in? do you still believe God's in the business of transformation Hmm. and uh, tried to encourage them with that? And then we walk through the story and it's a crazy story. Nebuchadnezzar has another bad dream. Uh, and he, nobody can figure it out. And Daniel again does. And Daniel says, Hey, the tree that's getting cut down, that's you. Uh, but you've got a chance. You've got a chance to repent of your pride. And mm-hmm. Nebuchadnezzar's like, thanks. And doesn't. Right. <laughs> and then it says 12 months later, he's standing up, looking over his kingdom, basically saying, how impressive am I? Like I'm the man, look at all that I've done. And at that moment, the the vision comes to pass, and he's basically turns into a madman. Right, and then he gets restored. Uh, and and I kind of frame the message around this: look at where his eyes are. Like at his worst, Nebuchadnezzar's eyes are on everything about him; they're all on his stuff. Hmm. Then he's humbled, and it says, "Then I lifted my eyes to heaven." And I talked about how pride is kind of the root of all of our sinfulness, and it's kind of the hurdle to a growing relationship with Jesus. And uh, and that eventually, as we as we understand our own need, our eyes get lifted to him and, and that that makes all the difference in the world. So it became a message about pride and humility. That's good. Uh, and in the struggle that pride is and that when we when we rely on our own self-righteousness, uh, when we are when we are all about our own uh, worthiness and, and it's all about us and our accomplishments, then our need for God, we're like, whatever, like, I'm glad to go to heaven one day. Yeah. But what do I need you for? Right. Uh, but that there comes a point where we can really accept the gospel when we're when we go, wow, I'm I'm, you know, my, my righteousness, the Bible says, is it's filthy rags. Yeah, right. And uh, and so I felt convicted by it because I do put a lot of uh, onus in my own worthiness and my own self-righteousness. And uh, yeah, kind of where are our eyes at and the encouragement was lift your eyes to heaven uh, and then we're in the right spot. So that was it. How about you? Well, we wrapped up our series. This changes everything. Where did you, uh, you preach yesterday? So I was at the Yellow Box. Oh, you were? Yep. Okay. And uh, I'll be at the Yellow Box tonight, by the way. So if you were off marathoning or cheering on someone who was 6.30 p.m. at the Yellow Box in Naperville. We so have, in like 45 minutes Yeah, from yeah. Now. We, have a, we have a service, so come on by. <laughs> come on by. It's going to be fun. Uh, yeah, so the whole series is kind of about this declaration that Jesus makes in Mark chapter 1 that the kingdom is near, right? This mm. idea that, like you were saying, it's not just hunker down on planet Earth for 70 to 80 years and then go to heaven when you die. There is this heaven to Earth right now. And right. so this was maybe the most, uh, at least convicting, I think, for me out of the whole series because it's like, okay, we talked about being with Jesus, this abiding with Jesus. We talked about becoming like Jesus, right? growing in Christ likeness. And this last one was now do what he did, mm. right? When he says in the gospel of John, even greater things like what if, what if he was serious mm. when he actually said that? And then the next couple of verses, he talks about how, right? He says, I'm going to send you an advocate. I'm going to send you the spirit of truth. The same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead is entrusted to us. And yet so often like that's where Jesus loses us, right? We're okay with the like spend time with Jesus thing. And we're maybe even okay with sort of the internal I'm growing in Christ likeness, mm-hmm. but the go- the doing the stuff piece I think is for a lot of us the hardest, myself included. I found a, a poll, and I have no idea how they figured this out, but Gallup found that 76% of Americans would check the box Christian, but 8% were actually following Jesus. Mm. I thought, that's a massive disparity, that's right? Huge. And so this idea that like we have intentions to like, you know, 
grow in Christ-likeness and do the stuff that he does. And then you, when we actually look at like our, li- our lives and our habits, are they actually forming us into these types of people? One of the things I said was, habits eat willpower for breakfast. <laughs> so often we want to like will ourselves to be good people when the, when the moment you know, strikes. But so often, like the reason that you practice free throws isn't just to be good at free throws. It's yeah. so that when the pressure's on, you know how to do a free throw. Like mm. driving a car, when you first learned, you probably had to think really intently about how to actually do it. But now yep. it's second nature, right? I couldn't tell you how I tied my shoes this morning. I just do it. And part of the challenge was that's a lot of what it means to grow in Christ likeness is to actually make these things part of our habits. And so we walk through this stages of apprenticeship that we believe Jesus actually models in the gospels. The first is I do you watch. Mm-hmm. So that's the come follow me invitation. The I do you help. That's the, I'm going to feed the 5,000, but you get to pass the food out. And it's the, uh-huh. you do, I help. It's Jesus sending them out and saying, declare that the kingdom of God is near mm-hmm. and preach and heal, but then come back and tell me. And then the last one is you do, I watch. And that is like the great commission, the passing of the baton. Mm. And so we challenged everyone to kind of think through that rubric, which is actually really simple, but difficult, right? That's always the weird tension. Like, okay, I get it. It's like downhill skiing. Like, I get the concept. I'm supposed to start up here and make it down here and not die. But it's actually much harder to do than I think a lot of people realize. So we, we were really kind of challenging people to think through what does it mean to, you know, the, the verse in Galatians 5 where Paul says, walk in step with the Spirit. Like, it's, it's about being for, It's about having our eyes open to where God is already working in our midst. And in Jesus' life, like, most of his miracles were interruptions. Most mm. of the time, Jesus was going somewhere else. And someone's shouting from the streets or they tug on his robe. Like, are we actually open to God interrupting our very important calendars? Like, do we actually have our eyes open to like where he's leading and how we can actually become a people of love? Cornell West says, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. Mm. This idea of like live the stuff, you know, and that people will not always people will not always live what they profess, but they'll always live what they believe. Yeah. So I kind of I kind of this was sort of my anchor metaphor was that it was Marathon Sunday. And I said, you know, next Sunday, if I went to a running club and said, I want to run a marathon next year. And they said, great. And they led me to an auditorium and they said, we're going to sing some songs about running. And then someone's going to come on stage and I'm going to talk to you for a half hour about running. And we'll sing some more songs and we'll see you next Sunday. And I said, if I did that every weekend for the next year, would I be any closer to being able to run a marathon? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. And I was like, no. And I was like, why do we think it's any different with spiritual formation that we can just sing songs as, as important as that is? Yep. We can learn stuff as important as that is. It's about actually aligning our lives to be formed into Christ likeness. And that happens not in like minutes and days, but in years and decades. Yeah. So that hopefully, you know, in the next 20, 30, 40 years, our lives not only look more like Jesus, but we're actually living the stuff out. Yeah. That he says, you, you'll do even greater things, not because you're great, but because I'm, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit, same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. I'm entrusting to you. Now go change the world. And mm. I think, man, that is a piece that's so convicting to me. Uh, but at least for me, a very, a very timely message. Yeah, that's good stuff. I also think next year you should run the marathon. Nah, I'm not interested. I mean, as like no. a picture. <laughs> as a picture? I, I, don't, am, I have no desire to I'd do rather it. learn Photoshop than to have that <laughs> picture. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope that that was helpful for you. Just uh, two pastors kind of going back, looking back the, to yesterday and what we taught on. Uh, hopefully that's uh, helpful for you. Well, coming up next. Uh, We end the show the same way every day, and that is some interweb insanity. That's coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. And that music can only mean one thing. 
Is it, it music? Is. is it really music? It's kind of jingle. It's uh, <laughs> open. What, what would you call it? Mm, haberdashery. It? Okay. That haberdashery <laughs> can only mean one thing, and that is that we are going to read sight unseen stories that our producers, uh, both PJ and Keith Conrad, have found for us. Uh, cr- interweb insanity. Crazy stories from the internet. And I'm going to ask you to go first. Is that because you flipped it over and saw Florida? And you're like, this? <laughs> I'm not doing it. <laughs> All right, from Florida, a woman celebrates 107th birthday, says her secret is drinking Coca-Cola every day. Wow. Uh, Francis Brassie is believed to be the oldest living resident in Hillsborough County, according to staff at her assisted living facility. Brassie was born in Montana on October 4th, 1912. That's crazy to think about, that isn't is it? That is wild. She was born in 1912. About six months after the sinking of the Titanic. This is a Keith story, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Legacy Lifestyles director Ashley Gunter says Brassie has traveled the world from South America to Asia and keeps knickknacks from her travels to China in her room. She retired to Florida in the 1980s and moved into the new Tampa facility when she was 103. Holy cow. The assisted living facility threw a party for Brassie to celebrate her birthday and invited all the residents to celebrate. They also surprised her with a birthday photo session from Ashley Victoria Photography to document the day. Gunter says when she's asked about the secret to her longevity, Brassie tells people, I just drink Coca-Cola every day. (laughs) She has limited capacities. All she can do is dial and yell. Well, I don't. Yeah, I don't feel great about that. I one. think she sounds like she's doing great. Yeah, I thought it was going to be a Coca Cola. You Ashley? Yes. I'm yeah, for- that was our producers. We rebuked that in the name of Jesus. I also told. I also don't know the first line there. A woman in New Tampa. Is there an old Tampa? It's a New Tampa. I've never heard of New Tampa. Yeah, that's what the kids are doing. <laughs> they make it up the new, new Tampa. Tampa. <laughs> ah, Michigan, America's mm. high, high five. five. Yes. Uh, Goodyear Blimp offers overnight stays before the Michigan Notre Dame game. No. Fans wondering what it's like inside the iconic blimp now have an opportunity to find out. In celebration of the Goodyear blimp being named an honorary member of the College Football Hall of Fame, Nerds. the doors are being opened in partnership with Airbnb for some hospitality in advance of Michigan Notre Dame on October the 26th. For around $150 per night, people will have the chance to visit the hangar in Ohio and stay overnight on October 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. The only bummer is the blimp will be grounded during. Oh, well, oh the that's what I was going to ask. Be grounded okay. during the stay. <laughs> the Goodyear blimp began providing aerial coverage in 1955. It has flown over more than 2,000 sporting events. That's pretty cool. Uh, and entertainment uh, events. The two-person package includes access to the Goodyear hangar, which is the size of 2.6 football fields and home of the blimp. Football lounge where guests can relax, lakefront spot with a grill, tickets to the Michigan-Notre Dame game and official gear, space for up to four friends to join in the revelry before the two guests retired to the cozy gondola of the blip. Oh, the humanity. Oh, I see the blimp. Well, you got all that for one fifty a night. See, that's really good. So, on the one hand, you get even tickets to the game is enough. Yeah. Wait, how is this? On the other hand, (laughs) you never get to go up in the blimp. Still though, for one fifty a night. Okay. I'm I'm just enough of a tightwad for that to be compelling. Yes. All right, Pennsylvania homeowner finds naked man singing in ki- kitchen drinking milk, learns that his name is Brian Fromm. Uh, Authorities nope. say a Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Brian, I'm trying to read a story right now, please. <laughs> Authorities say a Pennsylvania homeowner who heard Brian Fromm singing inside his home found a naked man named Brian Fromm drinking milk in his kitchen. Eerie police say the homeowner heard the singing around 3 a.m. Monday. He grabbed his pistol, oh boy, went to investigate and soon found the man sitting on the kitchen floor. The homeowner called police and the man was taken into custody. It wasn't clear how he entered the home or how long he'd been in the residence. No injuries were reported. Feels like I'm wearing nothing at all. (laughs) Nothing at all. Nothing at all. 
What is that even yeah, from? I don't know, but there, that felt like there was alcohol in that story. Yeah, that these, was not reported. Yeah. <laughs> Florida man arrested after pulling machete on a woman who refused to date him. Oh, boy. A man in Clearwater is facing aggravated assault charges oh, after he pulled gosh. a machete on a woman who refused to date him. Well, that's one way to win her over. Clearwater police arrested Leonard Thomas, age 55, just before 7 p.m. Police say Thomas and the victim were arguing when he became angry because she wouldn't date him. What? Thomas pulled the machete from a sheath on his belt and raised it. The victim ran away and called police. After his arrest, Thomas refused to cooperate and yelled obscenities at the responding oh, officers. No. Here it is. Thomas was heavily intoxicated yeah, at the time, sense. according to the report. He was arrested on a $5,000 bond. He remains behind bars. Nice. <laughs> That's a knife. All right, quick PSA, just as a rule of thumb. Maybe be cautious with people with machete sheaths yep. hanging from their belt. That's yep. not a not a great sign. <laughs> right, we're going to end with Florida. Florida making a strong showing today. Yeah. Man accused of enticing alligator to bite him, pouring beer in its mouth. Mm. I, I don't even... What are we doing in America? Uh, a, ho- a Hobie? A Hobie sound man. What? Hobie? Hobie sound. Hobie? I'm going. All right. Is accused of enticing an alligator to bite his arm and pouring beer into the reptile's mouth after his friend caught the animal. Timothy Kepke, 27, and Noah Osborne, 22, were both arrested October 3rd on one felony charge, each of unlawfully taking an alligator. In August, Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission got a complaint about Kepke holding an alligator and enticing the reptile to bite his right forearm and then pouring beer in the animal's mouth. Goodbye. I'm not going to waste my time arguing with a man who's lining up to be a hot lunch. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we've had that one before, but it's still pretty good. Florida never fails us. Well, another good Monday here on The Common Good. Thanks especially to Gene Kroom for joining us and being so generous with his time. If you missed any of the show, you can find it on the podcast. Uh, Come join us tomorrow on Tuesday from 4 to 6 p.m. for Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.